0: Hello and welcome to Speaking Startup, Missouri Business Alert's podcast covering the news and issues important to Missouri entrepreneurs. I'm Jack Anstein.
1: And I'm Casey Murray. On today's episode, we'll hear a little about the history of Black businesses in Missouri and the success of Black entrepreneurs throughout the ages.
0: And later, we'll hear the story of Black entrepreneurs who are working to change the landscape of Missouri farming through urban agriculture.
1: Plus, we'll have this week's headlines, digits, and other startup news you need to know.
0: So what are we waiting for? Let's speak startup.
1: So Jack, have you heard yet that our graduation this May is gonna be in person?
0: Yeah, I just saw that earlier. I was already planning with my family which six people are gonna be able to come.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting, especially cause it's kind of a signal that events are finally coming back in person after being virtual for so long.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that too. I also heard that classes next semester are gonna be more and more online let's just hope that people are still being safe.
1: Of course, we definitely wouldn't want to be in a worse situation eventually after we're finally kind of pulling out of everything.
0: Definitely, so we'll have to keep an eye on how things play out. Let's get to the headlines for now. The Biden administration has announced changes to the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, that will alter the distribution of coronavirus relief loans for businesses. The changes are aimed to help the smallest businesses and those left behind in previous relief efforts such as Black and Brown-owned small businesses. Effective Wednesday, only businesses with fewer than 20 employees are allowed to apply for PPP loans for a two-week period. Other changes include allowing loans to non-citizen business owners who are legal residents, those with non-fraud felony convictions, and small business owners who are behind on federal student loans. The deadline for the current round of loans is March 31st.
1: Kansas City area engineering firm Black and Veatch has spun off computer software company Atonix Digital, selling the company to the Atonix leadership team. As a result of the sale, Atonix Digital said it will be able to pursue new industries and grow its partner network. The company also anticipates increased hiring growth in 2021. Black and Veatch still has plans to partner with Atonix Digital and use its software in the future.
0: St. Louis-based biotechnology startup Pluton Biosciences has been selected to participate in Plug and Play Tech Center's AgTech Accelerator, based in Silicon Valley. As part of the Accelerator, Pluton Biosciences will participate in a 12-week program that provides mentor services, networking, and access to capital and customers. Plug and Play also typically invests in a quarter of its participants, according to Pluton officials. Pluton's acceptance into plug-and-play follows its participation in an accelerator run by San Diego-based genomics firm Illumina in 2020.
1: WuGen, a St. Louis-based biotechnology startup focused on developing cancer medications, has received a licensing agreement with Washington University. The startup now has the exclusive license to develop and commercialize the Memory Natural Killer Cell Program. The program is a treatment developed at Washington University for cancers, including acute myeloid leukemia, multiple myeloma and solid tumors.
0: Two St. Louis nonprofits have won certifications that will help them raise capital to increase minority entrepreneurial development. The nonprofits are Justine Peterson, a financial planner that assists low income individuals and Urban Strategies, a social services organization focused on creating middle income and wealth generating jobs. A Justine Peterson official said the certification could lead to millions of dollars in capital through new fundraising opportunities.
1: Now let's turn our attention to the history of entrepreneurship in Missouri.
0: What kind of historical stories were you looking at this week?
1: Well, since it's Black History Month, I wanted to know more about the history of entrepreneurship in Black communities.
0: And what kind of information did you find?
1: I learned a ton about how Black entrepreneurs started in the state and how changing laws and ideologies impacted their expansion, from slavery to segregation to urban renewal. Historian and high school teacher Miller Boyd, along with some entrepreneurs, spoke with me for the story. In downtown Columbia, on the corner of 5th and Walnut, there's a red brick building that's currently home to Tony's Pizza Palace. It marks the start of the African American Heritage Trail, as it's the last original building on what was once a cultural and business center for Black people in the city.
2: I was born in 1965, so by the time I was born, it was all done with. It was over with. Uh, the only thing that was still standing, of course, was my husband's building. And my parents used to take me to Tony's Pizza as a child. So I do remember that.
1: That's Fran Tibbs, who's married to Ed Tibbs, the owner of the building. Tibbs' father, Edward Tibbs the I, bought the building around 1960. It's one of the few survivors of the urban renewal efforts that demolished many of the buildings and pushed out business owners in what was known as Sharp End.
2: My parents they used to talk about going down there and enjoying everything as far as the nightlife the food they basically had their own hotels i found out later that they had their own cleaners Uh, basically all the essentials that the counterpart had they had
1: sharp end started in the early 1900s and included about 20 to 30 businesses but it's far from the first or only historical business success among African Americans in the state. According to historian and high school teacher William Miller Boyd III, the earliest businesses owned by Black people in Missouri were created by free men, or unenslaved Black people, in the 1700s.
3: It's going to be at the beginning where you're going to have this kind of in-between class uh, between, you know, your whites and your enslaved uh, Blacks, where they have to tried to navigate the realities of their life. Many people had been previously enslaved and, and after maybe purchasing their freedom or, or achieving it somehow, they've got to find a way to live and to possibly establish a legacy for their families.
1: Boyd says that after the invention of the cotton gin, Missouri saw an influx of people trying to farm cotton. The industry brought all kinds of business people with it, including slaves who had become free and free men from other areas of the country.
3: What's going to happen is that you are going to have other free Blacks from places like Kentucky who are going to come into places like St. Louis, and they're going to become a middle class. They will do things like being a laborer, but you also had uh, skilled laborers, blacksmiths, people who made barrels, and then you get this elite Black class uh, of men and women who make a lot of money via real estate speculation. And interestingly enough, the wealthiest occupation in general for Black men in the 19th century was barbers. And you've got some very, very wealthy barbers uh, by the end of 1870.
1: But the wealth surrounding hair care wasn't limited to men. CJ Walker, who has a Netflix series starring Octavia Spencer based on her success, is often credited as the first African-American female millionaire. In the early 1900s, Walker gave demonstrations about her hair products that she famously made in response to her own scalp disorder. Her method caught on, and by 1910, she had made the equivalent of millions of dollars in today's money. But Boyd says it's likely the first African-American female millionaire was actually Annie Malone, who worked for some time in St. Louis.
3: But Madam C.J. Walker actually worked for Annie Malone. And there were some accusations that uh, she took her, her formula.
1: Because Black and white communities were becoming increasingly segregated through the end of the 19th century, and as cities like St. Louis grew, Black people needed businesses in their community because they couldn't access those run by white people.
3: Just like with the white community, businesses emerged out of necessity. So if you needed a pharmacy, there was a Black pharmacist in the community. Uh, If you need a Black doctor, there was a Black doctor. Uh, Newspapers, those communities had to become self-sufficient because of their lack of access to white spaces.
1: Of course, as entrepreneurs got ideas, they also needed funding. Since Black people couldn't go to white banks, others in the community founded the first financial companies, Boyd says.
3: The issue was, of course, was finding capital. And you will see the the creation of several Black financial institutions in the early uh, 20th century in the 1920s. And one of them was called People's Finance Company. I believe it was founded around 1922, and that was the first Black financial company in the state of Missouri.
1: Then, Boyd says, in the 40s and 50s, a government policy known as urban renewal began and upended many communities of color, which is what happened to Columbia's sharp end. In St. Louis, the Mill Creek neighborhood was among the most affected.
3: Now, Mill Creek became the the victim of an urban redevelopment plan, a national urban redevelopment plan, where they came in and basically cleared this entire neighborhood, uh, destroying about, I believe they say about 8,000 businesses and displacing about 20,000 people.
1: Now, in 2021, entrepreneurs like Tibbs, who owns a Columbia salon called Me, My Hair and I, think about their own legacy in their community. Tibbs says that mentoring the younger generation is one of the most important things to her as an entrepreneur.
2: That's like the ultimate goal, you know, grab a hand and show them the way. That That's that's what we're supposed to do so that we can have other young Black entrepreneurs in Columbia that might want to open up their own shop.
1: Tibbs also says it's important to remember Black history, like Sharp End, because it reflects success in the community.
2: I think it is important For the young kids to know where they came from. I think that was the importance of the Sharpen. A lot of African-American kids, they didn't know that there was or that it even existed. So I think it lets younger generations know that we did have our own. We had everything that they had.
0: We now turn our focus to another story of Black entrepreneurship in Missouri. This one is focused on an industry where Black people historically and currently face adversity, farming.
1: I know farming is a major industry here in Missouri. What are some obstacles that Black farmers encounter?
0: Not only are Black farmers underrepresented in the industry, but they've also faced problems with access to funding and other resources as well.
1: Is there anything being done to address that underrepresentation and those other disparities?
0: There is. Some black entrepreneurs are trying to affect change through urban agriculture. Missouri Business Alert reporters Madeline Ewing, Alex Fulton, Ozzy Gonzalez, and Anna Kutz spoke with some black Missouri farmers to hear more about their experiences and how they've navigated starting a business in the industry.
4: According to the United States Department of Agriculture, Missouri is 11th in the nation for agricultural production, but less than 2% of Missouri farmers are black. Some Missouri entrepreneurs are looking to change that with small-scale urban agriculture.
5: I go by Tyrone Heyru Lewis. Heyru means um, Liberator King. I came with that name because uh, I want to liberate my people through food.
4: Tyran Heyru Lewis grows vegetables, fruits, herbs, and much more at Heyru Urban Farm in St. Louis. And he's found a way to connect with his community through food production.
5: For the first three years over here, no one said nothing to me, you know. I started growing food and people started talking to each other. I had neighbors even come up to me saying, man, you see the community really coming together.
4: Lewis practices community-supported agriculture, known as CSA, and plans on launching 12-week subscription boxes in March. But it wasn't always smooth sailing. He had some trouble securing funding for his farm at first, especially because of the complexity of federal loan programs.
5: Now, I might eventually have to go to loans. I don't want to. I don't like owing nobody no money, and I don't like interest. You know, that, That's a backwards game to me.
4: This last January, Lewis was awarded a grant of $50,000 from the University of Missouri-St. Louis's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Accelerator Program in order to help continue supplying produce for families in food deserts. Despite his own success in getting funding, he knows it can be a confusing process.
5: The point is, is somebody going to tell you where to find it? That's the key, right? Especially people you look like me, right? They ain't going to tell you everything. So you got to go search for it.
4: Searching for funding isn't only a modern problem. Valerie Grimm, a professor of African-American studies at Indiana University, says that historically, Black farmers have struggled to gain access to government programs and funds.
6: The barriers that Black farmers face today are the same ones that they faced in the 1860s and 1870s. Both historically and currently. What it takes to farm, first of all, is capital and credit. You need a line of credit at a bank that probably would allow you to buy farm equipment. You need the loans from the USDA so that you can buy whatever you need in order to get a crop in the ground. This proves difficult for
4: many aspiring black farmers. Grimm says that some of the qualifications to get funding can be exclusionary. To get a loan from the federal government, an applicant needs three years of experience in farming, one of which can be a credit from a college education in agriculture.
6: If there are some grants that are tied to college education, I would say that 90% of the minority population are starting behind because you got to have money to go to college. So if the inroads to that is a college education, then I think that that's a hindrance.
4: Non-white farmers may struggle in fulfilling some of these requirements, Grimm says. Academic credentials are not a problem for Lewis, who has a master's degree, but he understands as a Black farmer, he faces other disadvantages.
5: Is it a level playing field? Maybe not, but it's trying to get there, right? So um, so I hope that, that movement and that push keeps going and we can see some type of level playing field here with, uh, with black growers and our counterparts.
4: Like Lewis, Marion Pearson is trying to help cultivate an urban farming community in Missouri. Across the state in Kansas City, Pearson runs her own urban apiary called MoHives KC, which raises bees and sustainably harvests honey on six vacant lots. She founded the organization in 2019 by applying for a nonprofit status for beekeeping and broke ground in 2020.
7: Well, you know, I'm incredibly proud. I've never started a nonprofit. I've certainly been a part of nonprofits before, but I've never started one.
4: Despite not having vast acreage to work with, Pearson was able to find land for her apiary in the city.
7: What can I do in my tiny space in the world? I don't own rural property. I don't own a large tract of land. I'm in the middle of a city, like lots of urban residents find themselves, but wanting to do something environmentally that's important.
4: To Pearson, who works the apiary with about two dozen volunteers, the project represents a lot more than just urban agriculture. What I
7: do represent for people of color, especially um, Black people and Black women, is a person who decided, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to learn something, and I'm going to bring other people with me. And just that visibility invites other people, even when I'm not explicitly inviting them.
4: Seeing people like Pearson doing urban agriculture opens the doors for others to try
7: it out. People are recognizing, well, what do I have historical strength in? Luckily, people are recognizing that that agricultural history that they have, that familial and foundational knowledge that they have, really can be employed even in an urban setting. For
4: Lewis, taking part in agriculture is fueled by history. It's not just a current job. It's a connection to his past.
5: I always call them my ancestors too, so I, I include them in my work. So, for example, my ancestors were farmers, so anytime I'll come up with a, anytime I'm farming, I'm paying homage to them.
4: Lewis recently discovered he's a fourth generation farmer. His great uncle helped establish a co op of black farmers in Texas in the 1930s. And though it hasn't been easy, Lewis is motivated to expand his farm and inspire others to do the same.
5: But uh, but I, I, I really believe it's going to be a life-changing thing.
4: Whether harvesting honeycomb or pulling peppers, both Pearson and Lewis hope to inspire others with their agricultural work. And that starts with having a farmer that looks like them. With producers Madeline Ewing, Ozzie Gonzalez, and Alex Fulton, Anna Coots, Missouri Business Alert.
1: Now let's get to the digits of the week, the numbers that matter most in Missouri entrepreneurship. My digit is $100 million. Why is that? Hoffman Family of Companies, a Florida-based company, is trying to make Augusta, Missouri, a national wine destination, and says they could invest as much as $100 million into the area. They've acquired two more wineries, the Montel and Augusta Wineries, along with 250 additional acres of vineyard. The vineyard could become the largest in the Midwest, as the company looks to consolidate its wineries in a 700-acre area. David Hoffman, who owns the company and hails from Washington, Missouri, says he's already acquired 500 acres in land. I don't know about you, Jack, but I'm excited at the prospect that Missouri could become a premier destination for wine.
0: That could definitely do a lot for tourism dollars.
1: But anyway, what's your digit?
0: My digit is $10 million because that's how much money the Joplin Area Chamber of Commerce anticipates turning the public library's old building into an economic launch pad will cost. The building would be owned and operated by the Chamber, as well as Missouri Southern State University and the city. The plan for the building includes programs in small business development, professional advancement and mentorship. Financing for the project hasn't been secured yet.
1: That just about concludes our episode. We just need our closing thought. Here's Miller Boyd, teacher and historian, talking about the importance of entrepreneurship.
3: Owning a business is, uh, it's empowering. It allows you to shape your your own destiny uh, in many ways, but it also allows you to provide things that people might need or people don't know they might need, things that they might want. And I think the ability to bring value into a community, to establish an economy, to inspire trade and commerce. I think it's, it's a great thing and it helps communities to do well, to stay
0: safe, and to, to thrive. That's all for this week's episode. This has been Speaking Startup for Missouri Business Alert. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Casey Murray and me, Jack Anstein. Our theme music was produced by Elliot Bowman. We'll speak to you next time.